Well, we are going to um, head into a two-part. As much as I tried to make this only 10, and I succeeded nine times, but um, once I had finished um, paring down my notes as much as I possibly could, I had 30 pages. And um, I have been coming up here with about 19 pages or 20 pages. And that's been extremely hard and somewhat nerve-wracking if I'm... <laughs> just be honest, because um, I usually on Sunday morning I have about eight or nine pages. So um, just trying to put out a lot of information, um, but I just, I didn't, there was too many things I couldn't find to cut out. So um, just like uh, Emily, I told the worship team, see, are we going to have two parts? She goes, oh, just like the Lord's coming, the first and second. I thought, that's it. That's why I did it. That's why I did it. And so thankful for Emily telling me why I did that, but uh, that's why. Um, so this is going to be part one in a study of last things. So eschatology is the, the theological term that's used, eschatos, and is, is a Greek word. And it's a, it just simply means the study of last things. And this aspect of doctrine is concerned with what the future holds for the individual and I'm sure that's probably not on a lot of our radars tonight, but we are going to spend some time talking about that. But the, what, is, what's, you know, what does the future hold for the individual at death? Because that's future for all of us. And the events that will transpire at the last moments of the end of this age. So we're going to talk about um, the main views of last things or eschatology. We're going to talk about physical death. Um, next week, we'll get into the intermediate state and also to the future biblical events that are going to take place. But I want to begin and I, here tonight, and this is one of the reasons why I went to two studies. I touched on this last week, but any discussion about eschatology, I th especially if you're wanting to inquire, why are there different views? Has anybody ever wondered why? Do we as Christians have different views? I mean, anybody ever wonder that? Okay. So I'm, I'm going to tell you why um, we have different views. And, and it, it's, it's a really simple um, understanding once you, you see this. Um, and it, I'm not going to say it's for every single item, but for the big building block components of your theology, um, it hinges on, on something that we're about to discuss and we talked about it last week of how we interpret scripture. So we're going to talk about the historical, grammatical method of interpretation. We want to be concerned with what did it mean when it was written? And we want to pay attention to history. We want to pay attention to grammar. And, and actually, you could probably add to this a consistent historical grammatical method. And, and it's that word consistent that has conservative, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving, um, hope-filled Christians arrive at a different understanding of eschatology. It's that word consistent. Now, there are those out there who maybe don't believe in the, the, the word of God. They, you know, um, think it's just something that, you know, is... Uh, it's interesting reading. Well, I'm not, I'm not going to even address that. That's a, a, another category. But I'm talking about Bible-believing Christians. Uh, so I don't think we're surprised by this. But what is clear about prophecy is that it was given to help the follower understand, the follower of the Lord, to understand what was going to come. 
Daniel 9.23, at the beginning of your supplications, the command went out, and I've come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and what? Understand the vision. And I, and I will assure you, you can go and you can look up many that have taught on this or, or commentaries on this passage, and they will look at this and say, you can't understand this. And yet, it was given to understand. Daniel 9.25, know therefore and understand, he says it again, that from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until the Messiah, the prince, there shall be seven weeks and 62 weeks. He goes on and talks about it. But the emphasis I'm, I'm trying to have us see here is that prophecy is given that we might understand and we are commanded to understand it. Uh, Luke 19.42, Jesus saying, said this to the nation of Israel, if you had known, oh, wait a minute, the old prophets said, know and understand. And when Jesus came, they did not know or understand. And yet Jesus says, if you had known, even you, especially in this your day, the things that make for your peace, but now they're hidden from your eyes. So the Lord himself expected that the church, Israel, um, would understand what the prophets were saying about his coming. And so I want to take a, a, you know, a kind of a fresh look, a longer look this evening about how one approaches Scripture. What is the hermeneutic? How do you interpret Scripture? And it's going to influence greatly your outcome in eschatology. And I'll show you this in just a moment. But there are two main methods that are used um, when interpreting Scripture. There's a literal method. We talked about the historical or the consistent historical grammatical method. This is a literal method. And there is an allegorical method. And um, some will make a combination of both. But a literal reading of scripture is imperative, I believe, in order to arrive at the intended meaning that the Lord gave. And this method stands in distinction to the allegorical, which I just mentioned which looks to infuse spiritual meaning into many, not all, but many prophetic passages. Dwight Pentecost, he wrote a book, Things to Come, highly recommend it. He says this about allegorism. He says, the method of interpreting a literary text that regards the literal sense as the vehicle for secondary, more spiritual and more profound sense. So, Many will approach this. They'll have a, a method called, um, al, um, use it, you know, allegorical. Um, they'll, they'll see prophecy as an allegory. And what they're doing is they're interpreting that text that has a literal sense, but they're going to use that as a vehicle to arrive at a spiritual understanding, and they would argue a more profound understanding. And in this interpretive model, the original words or events are diminished and the significance of the interpreter is expanded. And I know that is like, man, they, they probably won't punch me right now for saying that. But I'm not trying to degrade any brother or sister, but I do believe that is the case. Let me read to you what Philip Barton Payne says about this and the sober warnery, uh, sobering warning he gives us with regard to allegorizing scripture as a hermeneutic. He says, allegorical interpretation, sometimes called allegorizing, 
is interpretation of texts that treat them as allegorical, whether or not their author intended them to be allegories. Very important. Allegorical interpretations, even of true allegories, can be misleading, either in incorrectly identifying the corresponding elements in the referent or in identifying corresponding elements where no correspondence was originally intended. Either allegorizing error usually detracts from the coherence of the message the author intended. Such unwarranted allegorizing was prevalent in the latter church fathers and often ludicrous in Gnostic circles. So this was a method that was adopted, um, you know, the second century, um, third century, it was rampant. It was a, the Alexandrian school of interpreting scripture. Um, Origen had a profound impact upon this method, early church father. And so they, they never looked to get just the literal meaning. They felt that was too shallow, that was not deep enough, that there was more that was to be found. And so they were always looking for something other than what it literally meant. So I don't know how you respond to how you feel about that, but to me, that's, 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 that's a difficulty. One of the great abilities that God gave to man, which the evolutionist cannot answer, is the ability to communicate. Language. It's, our language is, is detailed. It's so nuanced. It, we, we can discuss any subject with, with, with great clarity because words mean something. And because words mean something and you put them in a sentence and then you form paragraphs, we can come to an understanding of what that means. So God has graciously communicated through those words to us that we use. And now we can understand. We've got a Bible on our lap. We expect that we can read it and understand it because words mean something in sentences and paragraphs. And we understand different types of, of speech. And then we can come to an understanding of what God had to say. And it seems reasonable that if God was going to use words that have a clear meaning and give them a different meaning, there would be ample instruction about breaking the norms of language, which would need to be there for allegorizing of Scripture. And words mean something. And so if a word means this, and it always means this, and the writer's writing, and he thinks it means this, and now all of a sudden, without any other kind of information in Scripture, the Lord breaks that and says, well, it actually means something else. Well, who's to determine this? Who figures that out? Well, the reader figures it out. And you can find people that, are, um, that would align themselves in this camp of allegorizing Scripture you can find them, but when you begin to read their writings, you will be hard-pressed to find a consistency of interpretation. I'll let you ponder why that might be. So the consistent historical grammatical approach is the one that recognizes the norms of language consistently in all aspects of theology. We don't ignore literary style. We don't Ignore types of speech, hyperbole. We get it. We understand it. And we're able to, do, to, to take these in. And this is the accusation that would come against an individual like me. is like, well, you just read things and you, you, you have no sense of nuance in the passage. You don't understand you know, metaphors and you don't understand similes and hyperboles. That's not true. 
That is not true. So those who charge that the normal literal method of interpreting scripture fails to understand the place of metaphors, similes, and other symbols of literature, they do it without merit. I, 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 I challenge anybody, show me an example of that. Show me where those who take a consistent literal approach ignore these things. I know it's the accusation, but where's the merit? So this method fully appreciates all the tools of, of speech and the artistry of language. We're not setting them aside. Again, Dwight Pentecost says that the literalistic approach does not blindly rule out figures of speech, symbols, allegories, and types. But if the nature of the sentence so demands it, readily yields to the second sense. But if it doesn't demand it, if there's nothing in the text that would indicate that, then we will opt for the literal sense. Scripture itself teaches us how we should approach the word of God. And this is found so clearly in the New Testament. How do the New Testament writers interact with the word of God from the Old Testament? How do, they, how do they interact with it? And when you see how they take prophecies and they interpret them, you will quickly come to the conclusion that they also took a consistent literal approach, understanding types of speech and, you know, the artistry of, of, of literature. They brought it all in, but read through the New Testament. Do a study yourself and watch how they interact with the Old Testament prophets. With a consistent literal approach to scripture, the reader will discover what the Lord intended for him to know on any given subject that he talked about. Now, those that believe Israel has been replaced by the church, this could be called replacement theology. They don't like that name. Supersessionism is another word. But they admit that they abandon a literal method when they approach prophecy in the Old Testament that has not been fulfilled. Let me, let me give you an example. Um, Floyd Hamilton, um, he's an amillennialist, so he would definitely approach a um, scripture in an allegorical way. Um, he says this, listen closely, a literal interpretation of the Old Testament prophecies gives us just such a picture of an earthly reign of the Messiah as the premillennialist pictures. A premillennialist will take the uh, historical grammatical approach, a consistent one. And so this guy who's an amillennialist on the other side says, yeah, if you take the prophecies of the Old Testament and you take them literally, you will be a premillennialist. You don't have a, a, a just... That's what happens. So I said in the beginning, people end up having different ideas about the end times. How come that is? Well, one of the major reasons is because there's a different approach to the prophecies of the Old Testament that have not yet been fulfilled. Now, when it comes to the prophecies that are fulfilled, do you think they take it allegorically or do you think they take it literally? They take it literally every single time. All the ones that have been fulfilled, they take it literally. All the ones that remain unfulfilled, 
Many of them, I'm not going to say all of those unfulfilled prophecies, but many of them, they're happy to infuse an allegorical approach. Let me give you an example. If you were to talk to uh, one who, does, who adopts an allegorical method, when especially looking at prophecy, um, they would take literally that the Messiah was born of a virgin. That he was pierced in the crucifixion, just like we read in the Psalms. That there was a casting of lots for the Lord's clothes. That he was betrayed by a friend. That he rode into Jerusalem on a donkey. And that he was born in Bethlehem. You won't find any Bible-believing Christian that would say those things didn't literally happen. We all celebrate the clarity of who the Messiah was. That's how they knew who he was because he fulfilled the prophecy literally. And so they could say, that is him. We can look at the prophecies. We can read them and then read of his life and we can say, that is him. And so there is an understanding that these are literal. But when scripture speaks of the same Messiah ruling on the earth in the future, Delivering Israel from judgment in the future. Specifically, the physical descendants of Abraham. They will approach those, in most cases, with an allegorical approach. Not a literal approach. And sometimes, they will change their method of interpreting scripture from one verse to the next. Okay, Troy, now I think you're using hyperbole. No, I'm not using hyperbole. Look, look at this. Zechariah chapter 9, verses 9 and 10. Okay, so let's look at just verse 9. Rejoice, O greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and having salvation, lowly and riding on a donkey, a colt, the foal of a donkey. Question, do you allegorize that or do you take that literally? I mean, we know Jesus, I mean, we read in the Gospels, he got on a donkey and he rode it into Jerusalem, just like the prophet Zechariah said. Verse 10, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem. The battle bow shall be cut off. He, who's the he? It's the one who rides in on the donkey. He shall speak peace to the nations. His dominion shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, how do you take that? Do you take that literally, or do you take that allegorically, or do you spiritualize this? Now, I, I think all of us, even if you, I, would be, I wouldn't be surprised if even somebody came in here holding to an all-millennial all view and had not dug deep into this, that if, I was to, if you were just to look at this, you would not expect to switch your interpreting uh, of Scripture right here in between verses 9 and 10. And I would challenge you, if you look at this and say, no, this is not referring to Jesus literally ru ruling over the nations, and that there's not going to be a peace upon this earth like is described with him you know, uh, bringing it, then where do you get the indication in this text that that's the case? There is none. There's no indication whatsoever. Verse 9 is literal. There is no question about it. So why do we change? This is one example I could give you dozens. And so this is why you have, you know, Bible-believing, Jesus-loving Christians, conservative, 
They will fight for the inerrancy of scripture. These are not bad brothers and sisters. We just have a different view of the end times. How can that be? Because we come to scripture and one group, a, you know, like ourselves, we will say we're going to interpret it literally. Where literal sense makes sense, that's the sense we look for. Okay, if it's talking about, you know, metaphors and similes, then we're going to have to work through that to find out what the literal meaning is. But we don't just begin to allegorize it. I say, why change your method? Why change your method from verse 9 to verse 10? There's only one answer. It's because I've got a theology driving my hermeneutic. That is how I interpret scripture. And the theology is this, is that God is done with Israel that Jesus will not reign upon this earth. And so because I have, um, I, I see that uh, the church is a fulfillment of Israel. So now when I come to these passages that are otherwise would have been taken literally, I infuse a allegory. So when it says Israel, it doesn't really mean Israel. It means the church. But I guarantee you that, you know, where we just read in Zechariah 9, 9 and 10, I guarantee you Zechariah was not thinking about the church. And I can tell you without question that neither was Jesus. Um, the early church fathers didn't think of this. Later church fathers began to do this as that allegorical method came in. So I, I, know, I realize that's coming. Man, that's some real nerdy stuff right there. Yes, okay, it is. But I, I hope that that helps you understand why we arrive at different conclusions. And, you know, really, to me, if you want to dive into prophecy, you've got to answer this question first. Because how you answer this question is going to shoot you out one of two, you know, um, tubes. That is just the way it is. And so this is something that is so important for... Um, you to consider as you look at scripture. So let's talk about some of the main views of eschatology. Uh, in the history of the church, we've talked about the different views, but there are three main views. Premillennialism was the earliest view that was held by the church. Amillennialism began to quickly move in and it became the dominant belief of the church for, I don't know, a thousand years or so. Postmillennialism, um, then began to take a rise up until World War II. And then after that, there was a return to a premillennial view. But so much of this depends on this passage right here. Revelation 20, verses 1 through 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, having the key to the bottomless pit, and a great chain is in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. And so each one of these um, views, and we're going to talk about them in just a moment, they will, they, they're going to have a different interpretation of this. Now the premillennial is going to look at this and say, how long um, do you expect the Lord to, to rule and reign upon the earth and for Satan to be bound? And for how long? He's like, yes, I do. Yes, he will be. And it's going to be for a thousand years. I mean, this, this is the, the approach. But the all-millennialist is going to come up differently. So let's talk about premillennialism. And if that's, and, but I, I also want to expose you to this. 
is that under premillennialism, there are two different understandings. So we're going to develop this. The position that believes the millennial kingdom will follow Christ's return to earth is the premillennial view. So the millennial kingdom, the thousand-year reign, will follow Christ's return to the earth. Jesus comes back before there's a thousand-year reign, a premillennial. Uh, Renald Showers says um, and argues, and he has a book, by the way, it's called There Really Is a Difference, A Comparison of Covenant and Dispensational Theology. I know that's a really riveting title, title that I'm sure every one of you probably just bought it on Amazon. Um, but Renald Showers, There Really Is a Difference, A Comparison of Covenant and Dispensational Theology. It's a, it's a little one. And I, it's very accessible. You, it's very easy to read, other than that he just loads you down with a lot of scriptures to look up. But that's a good thing. And he writes and he argues that, um, and he gives you all the evidence for it, so I'm not going to take the time to do it here, but that was the, the dominant view um, and it, you know, of Christians from the first to the third centuries and then eventually um, the all-millennial view Think of Augustine, who made that view very popular. Um, so within premillennialism, there are two distinct approaches. The f- one is the historic, and one is the dispensational. We are the dispensational. So let's talk about this. Enns writes, Paul Enns writes, and he says, the hermeneutical system of the historic premillennialism distinguishes it from the dispensational premillennialism. In historic premillennialism, a distinction between Israel and the church is not maintained, nor is a consistently interpretive method demanded. So they, both of these views believe that the, there's going to be the reign after Jesus, but they don't hold to the same consistent view, um, or they don't hold it the same way. So dispensational premillennialism is the only view that takes a consistent literal approach concluding that the church and Israel are distinct and so when you talk about this it's like how are you going to interpret it when you figure out how you're going to interpret scripture it will bring you inevitably if it's a consistent literal approach it will bring you inevitably to this conclusion that the church and Israel are different. Now, believing Jews are part of the church, but, that, but if you have a consistent literal approach, it's, you will come to the conclusion that Israel and the church are different. Now, if you have those two things going for you, you're going to fall into the camp of dispensationalism. That's what that means. Have dispensationalists made it difficult to believe dispensationalism at time? Yes, they have. And you know what? Not only are they consistent at interpreting scripture, this has been a consistency for 2,000 years. I think we need to be careful. I'm I'm in this camp, and I think we need to be so careful that we don't look at everything that happens in the world and say, look, Jesus is coming back now because this thing happened. I think we need to be careful. We need to be measured. We need to look at the prophecies of scripture to help determine this and not look at everything that happens. I mean, one guy was preaching a sermon and he said, we know Jesus is about to come back because millennials are eating a lot of fast food. What? (laughs) Sit down. That doesn't, I mean, I don't even, 
I don't even know what to do with that other than just to shake my head. But this is the error that dispensationalists have fallen into. And so for those on the other side, they look at that and they're like, yeah, that's nonsense. And I would agree with them. That is nonsense. But what is your method for interpreting scripture? And do you see a distinction between Israel and the church? A second distinguishing factor between um, historic and dispensational premillennialism. So number one is there's a difference between Israel and church. Secondly is um, one sees the church going through the tribulation, historic, and the other does not see the church going through the tribulation. That would be dispensationalism. Why? Because there's a distinction seen in scripture between what happens to Israel in the last days and what happens to the church in the last days. So if you're following me, when you begin to make this conclusion about how you interpret, and if you come to the conclusion that Israel and the church are different, whether you know it or not, you have just landed into a theological camp concerning eschatology. So they see... Um, that the, the church will go through the tribulation. Um, that would be historic. And um, premillennialism says, no, they won't. So let me read to you a couple of scriptures here. Jeremiah 30, verse 7, referring to Israel, of course. Alas, for that day is great so that none is like it. We're talking about the great tribulation. And it is a time of Jacob's trouble, but he shall be saved out of it. Who's Jacob? Well, this is a name for Israel, isn't it? Jacob is renamed Israel. And so Jeremiah is looking into the future and he's saying there is going to be a great day of trouble. And there's not going to be another day like it. And you can find places in the New Testament where it says the same thing. And the prophet says, but he shall be saved out of it. So now as you read this, who is Jacob? Well, some would say, well, that's the church. Well, if you come to the conclusion that Jacob is the church, then the church goes through what? the tribulation, and the Lord has to save him, save her out of it. But if you believe that Jacob is Jacob and his descendants, then who has to be saved out of the tribulation? You got it, Israel. I think you're probably seeing how this fits together. Daniel 7, 25, he shall speak pompous words, this is the Antichrist, against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hands for time, times, half a time, or three and a half years, half of the tribulation period. Who are the saints? Well, if you're Daniel, there's only one group that could possibly be the saints, and it is his people, Israel. So you can look at this and you can see a difference. Say, well, aren't saints, aren't saints you know, um, the church? Well, yeah, we're set apart ones too, but you've you got to let the context determine. And let me, let me give you an example in Matthew 24, and you'll have to turn there um, to, to follow me on this one because it's a little bit lengthier. It won't fit up on the screen. Verses 15 through 22. Jesus is talking about the great day. Jesus is talking about the great tribulation. Jesus is talking about the tribulation at the middle point. Three and a half years in. And listen to the descriptors he gives of where this is going to take place. Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet... Standing in the holy place, whoever reads, let him, what? Understand. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Well, where's Judea? It's in Israel. 
Is that literal or is that allegorical? Well, that depends on your, that depends on your method, right? Let's keep reading. Then let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. Let those who are in the housetop not go down to uh, take anything out of his house. And let him who is in the field not go back to get his clothes. But woe to those who are pregnant and to those who are nursing babies in those days. Because it's going to be a bad day. And pray that your flight may not be in winter. Okay, that's pretty broad. That could be for anybody. Winter happens all over the world. Or on the Sabbath. Oh, that would have application to people living in Judea that are in Israel. For then there will be great tribulation such as not been since the beginning of the world until this time, no, nor ever shall be. And unless those days were shortened, no flesh would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days will be shortened. So who are the elect? Well, I think it's talking about the same people Daniel was because Jesus is quoting from Daniel. Um, another one, Revelation chapter 12 Verses 1 through 6. Again, we're just we're saying, who's going to go through the tribulation? Is it going to be Israel or is it going to be the church? Well, if you don't take things literally and you don't see a distinction between Israel and the church, then you see the church going through the tribulation. But let's read Revelation 12 and see what the text says. Now a great sign appeared in heaven. A woman clothed with sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head were a garland of 12 stars. You can go back to the story of Joseph and come up with a pretty clear understanding. We're talking about Israel. Then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain gave a pain to give birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great fiery red dragon having seven heads and ten horns and seven diadems on his head. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was ready to give birth to devour the child as soon as it was born. So, you know, so Jesus came to this woman. Israel was born through a specific woman, um, Mary, and Satan tried to destroy him early on Herod, through Herod. She bore, verse 5, a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. And her child was caught up to, the, to God in his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God. That, she should, that they should feed her for 1,260 days, which is three and a half years, which is why the abomination happening in the middle of the tribulation is why they are fleeing out to this place. So you see, you can begin to look at this, and if you see a distinction between Israel and the church, then you come to the conclusion that it is Israel that's in the tribulation, not the church. Do we go through tribulation? Um, yes, we do. Are Christians being martyred for their faith? Yes, they are. Being thrown in jail, beat up, losing jobs? Yes, yes, and yes. But will we go through the great tribulation? No, we won't. We'll talk more about this later. But I'm just trying to give you this understanding of these two different types of premillennialism. One is a historic. Um, they, they would agree and say yes. Uh, the thousand-year reign will happen after. They may not see it as a literal thousand years, but it will happen after Christ returns. But they don't see a distinction. They don't interpret Scripture consistently. Um, so let me read a, a quote to you from um, Paul Enns for why um, this distinction is, uh, needs to be seen. 
It says, since the pre-tribulation rapture is connected to a clear distinction regarding God's program for Israel and his program for the church, and since historic premillennialism does not accept that distinction, historic premillennialism teaches that the church will go through the tribulation. So just so you can know, it's not me making all this stuff up here. But dispensationalism, dispensational premillennialism anticipates that the promises given in Scripture to the church is going to have a literal application to the bride of Christ. And so here are your verses for this. That the church will not go through the tribulation. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 For God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. The tribulation is God pouring out his wrath upon a disobedient nation to wake them up and to judge the nations that are persecuting her. 2 Thessalonians 2, so clear, so clear, verses 1 through 6. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, listen, we ask you not to be soon shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day this judgment day, will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worship. So that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. This is the day that they're afraid that they're in. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining, that he may be revealed in his own time. So the question is this. They're troubled, they're disturbed in their spirit. Somebody told them, Hey, this is, this is a great tribulation. You're in the day. And they get troubled. They're freaking out. Now, if they expected to go through the great tribulation, would they be troubled? No, they would say, buckle up, boys. This is exactly what Paul said was going to happen. We're about to go through some difficult times, but it's only going to last for seven years. At the end of the seven years, we're going to be in the presence of the Lord. Remain steadfast. That would have been their response, but instead they got troubled because they thought that they were in the day. And Paul says, no, 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 you won't be in that day. I've already, we already talked about this. One more passage, and we could go to others. But why I believe the scripture teaches the church will not be in the tribulation. Revelation 3.10, writing to the church, he says, but because you've kept my command to persevere, I also will keep you from the hour of trial which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. The church is going to be kept from this hour. They're going to be kept from Jacob's trouble. But guess who's going to be in Jacob's trouble? Jacob. Why? Because they don't believe in Jesus and they have not put their faith in him becoming a part of the church. Not losing their ethnic identity in the process, but because they've not become part of the church, Jacob is going to go through this tribulation and the Lord is going to save him. But for those that are a part of the church, Jew and Gentile alike, they will not be in this day. So the third distinction between these two brands of premillennialism, dispensationalism and historical, is whether or not the reign of Christ has already begun. So we dispensationalists would hold that the reign will not begin until after the seven-year tribulation. Um, Christ will physically be present on earth during this reign in his resurrected body 
and, and will reign as king over the entire earth, just like Zechariah 9, verse 10 said. And in this worldwide rule, that's not easy to say, actually, worldwide rule. Did I say that right? Jesus will establish a political kingdom that's going to be centered in Jerusalem, fulfilling the promises that were given to Israel, literally. That's, our, that's my take. Historic premillennialism on this point of whether or not the reign has begun would say it has begun in spirit and will continue into the future following Christ's second coming. But boy, if Satan is bound right now, I'm very disappointed. I mean, has anybody wrestled with the darkness this week? Is it, is it just me? I can, man, I was today, I mean, I had such a great week, had a great day, had a great time studying, finishing it up, everything's going well, my planes were on time, I walked out to get my rental car and it was there for me, I didn't have to get, just, you know, everything went so well, I had a great time with my wife and the staff, was able, was able to teach, I was happy the way teaching went, came back, looking forward to talking about this, and then on the way here, it was like, just my mind was blowing up. I was angry at people I haven't even met yet. You know, I was just like, <laughs> what is going on, Lord? And I'm just like calling out to him, Lord, my, my, this is not pleasing to you, and it's not even pleasing to me. Lord, help me. Yeah, I think he's still on the prowl. That's my thought. So, not a historic premillennialist. I am a dispensational premillennialism. You like all these words. The notes are online. You can go to the, you can go to our website, click on Doctrine Series, and um, Daniel on the road up here got these notes and he put them up on the web for you. So they're there. You, all the things I'm going through. So that's premillennialism. Jesus will come back after the seven-year tribulation, and he will rule and reign on this earth from Jerusalem. That's premillennialism. All millennialism teaches that the kingdom will only be a spiritual rule of Christ. So there won't be a physical uh, rule here on this earth. And when we read about the thousand years, we're like, meh, whatever, thousand. Allegory, we don't know what that means. You don't know what that means. No, we don't know what that means. It says a thousand, but it doesn't mean a thousand. Well, how do you know that doesn't mean a thousand? Because it just doesn't. It's a book full of symbols, so this doesn't mean a thousand. Sounds like it means a thousand to me. And so this is where all millennialism would hold a different view. Let me give you a long quote from Wayne Grudem. Uh, in his book, Systematic Theology, he says... Those who are said to be reigning with Christ for a thousand years are Christians who have died and are already reigning with Christ in heaven. Christ's reign in the millennium, according to this view, is not a bodily reign here on earth, but rather a heavenly reign he spoke of when he said, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So they say he's ruling in heaven. Again, they don't believe the thousand years. And this was the dominant position in the church from the 5th century, 3rd century, some would say, all the way to the 17th. It was the dominant view, the, the most uh, widely held view. And then it gave way to post-millennialism. What is post-millennialism? This third view. 
Postmillennialism states that, the, that this rule of Christ will be ushered in by the church as she takes the gospel into the world. And after establishing the kingdom upon earth, Jesus will return at his second coming. So these believers believe, hey, that the gospel is the power of God into salvation. It is so powerful. It will change this world. It will change society. The governments, the arts, the sciences, everything is going to be changed. And there'll be this beautiful reign upon the earth. And um, they would look at a guy like me and they're like, you just don't believe in the power of the gospel like you ought to. Oh, okay, so we disagree. I believe in the power of the gospel to save, but I think that it's going to take Jesus on the earth to actually establish this kingdom for all kinds of um, biblical reasons. For them, the notable feature um, of this kingdom is that it'll be established through a supernatural intervention of Christ into history at his second coming. Uh, so that's what we would believe. Instead, it will be established through human effort. I think that might be slightly unfair. Because I don't think that those who hold to a post-millennial view would say it's human effort. They're talking about the power of the Spirit working through them. But I think you get the idea. Um, again, Grudem, another quote, he says, um, his, again, his understanding of, and we're talking about post-millennialism here, his understanding of the millennium. He says, it will last for a long period of time not necessarily a, th a literal 1,000 years. And finally, at the end of this period, Christ will return to earth. Believers and unbelievers will be raised. The final judgment will occur, and there will be a new heaven and earth. So if you hold to a post-millennial view, you believe that through the efforts of the gospel and the church, we're going to establish a just a glorious kingdom upon this earth, and then we will get it ready and Jesus will come to it. I'm tired just saying that. <laughs> but that is the view. That is the view. And this view thrived um, for a couple hundred years until we had two world wars. And after those world wars, people are like, I don't think things are getting better. And this view you can document it began to fall off and it wasn't held as much. And this gave rise to, you guessed it, premillennialism and its dispensational form specifically. So among these traditionally held views, um, it is only dispensational premillennialism that faithfully or consistently um, literally interprets the teaching of Old Testament prophecy. So, I mean, that's just the facts. That's, that's not, that's, I mean, they, you know, you could get anybody else in this room and that holds a different view and they would also agree with that. And they would think that we have a problem that needs to be corrected. But you know, this view of a premillennial reign of Christ upon the earth, rescuing Israel, it honors the everlasting promises that God made to Israel. Jeremiah 31, verses 35 through 36. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for a light by day. Is that literal? The ordinances of the moon and stars for light by night. Is that literal? Who disturbs the seas and its waves roar? Do waves roar? Do they make noise? The Lord of hosts is his name. 
If those ordinances depart from before me, says the Lord, then the seed of Israel shall also cease from being a nation before me forever. Well, probably not going to see him tonight, but somewhere, if you could get above those clouds, you could see the stars and you could see the moon. Tomorrow, unless the Lord returns or something you know, happens we're not expecting, and you're going to see the sun, right? So when you see that, you can know that God is true to his promises to Israel, that they're going to continue to be a nation, which ought to give you a lot of assurance that God's going to be true to the promises he made to you. Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, God ha, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. So they still hold their ethnic distinction. They, they're certain, we, we are, the church, we've been brought together as one new man, but they have not lost their promises as an as a ethnic people. Moving on down later in that chapter, verses 25 through 26. For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion and he will turn ungodliness from who? Jacob, I don't know how you get around that. God is not done with Israel. And if you're thinking God might be done with you, he's not done with you either. So God has a plan for the church, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles, believing Jews and believing Gentiles. And he has a plan for Israel. Let me read to you Ephesians chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. It says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace which was given me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which when you read you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles shall be fellow heirs of the same bodies and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel. So the Lord is a church, and we as Gentiles get to be a part of it. This wasn't revealed in the past, you don't read about the church in the Old Testament. It was a mystery, not something that had been talked about. But it became talked about. Jesus said he would build his church. And of course, on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2, it started. So this is something that is so important. If you, when you come to handle or you ask the question, why are there so many different views? Because we interpret unfulfilled prophecy differently. We will take it literally. Others will take it allegorically. They will spiritualize it. They will put the church in place of Israel and they don't make a distinction between the two. Those two things. Now, if you believe in a literal approach to scripture and you believe in a distinction between the church and Israel, then you are a dispensationalist. 
And you have to deal with all the people that say funny things. They're part of that camp too. But you know what? That's not what determines what I'm going to believe. What determines my belief is the word of God. And I can't see any way around it. You know, I, I just, there, there came a time. Um, so, I, all right. So I, I began this church. We moved out here when I was 27 years old. I had not been to seminary. Um, had not been to Bible college. I had a couple of Bible college classes. But I was just, I just began to, to work through this. And um, eschatology was a tough one. I mean, I knew what to say about the passages. But there was this part of me that just didn't really understand how, I, how come I was landing there. And I, I just remember that, you know, you know, I don't know how many years in, maybe about six or seven years into the, this church, and I was just sitting down one day, I was just thinking about this whole process, and I said, well, the reason why I believe what I believe is because I take this literally. And because there's a difference. Nobody... There are 150 books out there on that subject. I had never read that before. Nobody had ever told that to me that I could remember. I was just sitting down going through the scripture. This is why I believe it. And then one day I was reading through some other uh, books on eschatology. And they began to say all these things I'm reading to you. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's exactly right. And I, I, I can't tell. I'm so glad that I came to that conclusion on my own through a lot of uh, blood, sweat, and tears, and anxiety of where I was going to land as I was really working through all these issues. And, um, and I was able to get to this, to this place, these conclusions, although they were very well established. I just didn't know this part. But you, hopefully you can see how come there are differences. And if you want to just work through it, you've got to answer these two questions. How are you going to interpret unfulfilled scripture? And what do you think about Israel? Is God done with her? Or does he still have a plan for the nation, those ethnic people? And how you answer those two questions is going to put you in a camp. And so we might have a part three at the rate I'm going. <laughs> so I'm, not going to, I'm just not going to go any further than this because I think that's, that's enough to digest. Um, and, uh, you know, next week we'll, we'll get into some more details. I was going to talk about, you know, when we die what happens and, and some of those questions and the believer's hope and stuff. But we'll, we'll come back to this later. You can read ahead. The notes are out there to see what we're going to do. And then there's a, a whole other Bible study, so I don't know what I'm going to do with that, but I'll, I'll squeeze it together somehow. But um, Jesus is coming back. And when he comes back, he's going to come back and he's going to rescue Israel, but we're coming back with him. We're going to watch him. Listen. You're going to watch with your eyes Jesus of Nazareth, the creator of the world, rescue Israel, throw Satan and the Antichrist. Well, throw, initially he's going to grab the Antichrist and the false prophet and throw them into the lake of fire. He's going to bind Satan up and he's going to allow there to be a time of peace from river to river, from sea to sea, upon this earth that it has never seen before. And Jesus will rule and reign. And you know what? As one who believes in Jesus, you're going to rule and reign with him. And you're going to come back with him. And so what a hope we have. And when you begin to think about things of this magnitude, don't allow insignificant little sins and carnality and attitudes 
to keep you from living for this amazing kingdom that he's bringing us into. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. We love you. We can't wait for you to return for us. And, um, and, and then to be able to watch you establish your kingdom and establish justice, to, to rule with a rod of iron, to see your people, Israel, that chosen nation of yours, come to faith. Lord, we want to be faithful as we wait for all of these things to take place. So may we live as though you are returning at any moment for us. And it is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.